Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Wait for it. A warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I am so glad to be across the studio from my friend Jeff Verdorn. We're continuing our series in 1 Thessalonians. We're also going to hit 2 Thessalonians, but we're still in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And Jeff, I don't want to go through a lot of what we talked about last time, but I do want to, according to my memory, we touched on Romans 8.28, and I think it would be good to go back and talk about that some more as we get into 1 Thess chapter 3. Absolutely. Well, Welcome, hi, Bill. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were, as we finished up last time in this series, we were kind of on this promise, this great promise of God, Romans eight twenty eight. And if you're not familiar with it, it says that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And it's this wonderful promise that we talked about that all events, good and bad, we know that God is working these things for his purposes, for the good of those who love him. And ultimately, we've read the back of the book. We know the ultimate good that is in store for all believers is this wonderful promise of a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, glorification of the body. And I wanted to just pick up where we left off last time, because this promise um, is, do we really really, truly believe this promise? Great question. When things are happening in our lives, uh, I, I see a tendency that people often want to blame God or ascribe their bad events to God. And I, God is a good God. He loves us. I, I am always reluctant to ascribe evil or bad things to God. He's a God of truth. He loves us. He desires what is good for us. We live in a fallen world and bad stuff is happening. Uh, And so I don't think that comes from God. If you remember the book of Job, Job and his friends actually thought all of Job's um, issues and all the things that happened to Job were from God, right? Well, they didn't have the luxury of reading Job chapter 1 because in Job chapter 1, we actually find out who is doing all this to Job, and that's the enemy, the devil, who is Satan. He is the one that is causing all these bad things to come upon Job's life. But when we talk about good and bad, do we really, really believe that God's working them for good? And do we recognize that? There's this kind of famous parable, and it's called the parable of the farmer. Some call it the parable of the Chinese farmer. But it goes like this, and I think this is so illustrative of how God uses all things for good. There was a farmer, and his prize mare escapes and runs away. And all of his neighbors come to him and say, oh, what a terrible thing. And the farmer says, how do you know? The next day, the mare returns from the mountains and is followed by a herd of stallions. And and the man corrals all these stallions into his pen. And all of his neighbors come to him and say, what a wonderful thing. And the farmer says, how do you know? Well, the next day, the sun is breaking in one of the stallions, but he's thrown off the horse and he breaks both of his legs. And all of his neighbors come to him and say, what a terrible thing. 
And the farmer says, how do you know? And the next day, the army was coming. They were being invaded from the north, and every able-bodied man was supposed to join the army and go fight the invaders. But they left the son behind because of his two broken legs. And all of his neighbors said, what a wonderful thing. And the man said, how do you know? We look at events, and we have our own opinion on events, and we call some things good, and we call some things bad. We make judgments about what's a wonderful thing and what is a terrible thing. And I have to ask, are we sure? And I think of the crucifixion of Christ. And if we knew who this man was, that the creator of all things came to earth in the flesh, and now man is killing God incarnate, we would probably say, what a terrible thing. Not only what a terrible thing, this is the worst event in human history. But God then takes what man does, and Jesus rises again after three days, conquers the grave, conquers death. The grave could not hold him. And you now look at that event and you say, oh, I was just a little off. It's not the worst event in human history. It's the greatest event in human history. What a wonderful thing. Yeah, I love that story, Jeff. And we can even take it to this place in current day if somebody, uh, you get news that somebody wins the lottery. (laughs) Oh, that's such good news. What a wonderful thing. Is that good news? Because you oftentimes hear two years later they're broke and, you know, dead or something. It's some of the worst stories I've ever heard. It's astounding how many lottery winners end up actually bankrupt. Yeah. And not joyful. Right. And happy and at peace. You'd think that that would bring security, but a lot of times it just brings issues and problems. Yeah. And then there are other times when we know the stories of people who've had great adversity And we think this is the worst thing ever. And it turns out into this most spectacular ministry that you couldn't ever imagine without this difficult set of circumstances. How many times have you had, uh, especially on some of your your weekend show, Real Recovery and some of those, where somebody has gone through an addiction, issues with life or so on, only to come out of it with God's help to then serve and minister to those who are in a similar situation? Mm Mm-hmm. Completely true and so profound, and they're more equipped than anyone else to deal with other people suffering in the same situation. Yeah. So no, it's a it's a powerful powerful concept. And so a great reminder when you have things that come into your life, it is good to ask in light of Romans eight twenty eight, how do I know this is good or how do I know this is bad? Because if all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose, let's live under that beautiful umbrella that says God's got this. It is a beautiful umbrella. Yeah. You know, the story of Joseph, do we got a couple minutes? Oh, yeah. Because this is a little bit. Oh, here. yeah. The story of Joseph is an amazing illustration of this truth. You know, Joseph's brothers in the Old Testament, if you recall, he was the one that had some dreams and wore the coat and was dad's favorite. And his, his, his brothers didn't really like that. And they sold him into slavery into Egypt. What a terrible thing. The worst. Joseph rose to prominence, however, after he got to Egypt, into Potiphar's household. Potiphar was a a servant of of the Pharaoh, and he was put in charge of many things in in this man's household. What a wonderful thing. 
But Potiphar's wife, if you remember the story, tried to seduce Joseph and when he uh, and wanted him to sleep with her, but he wouldn't. And Joseph was thrown in prison because he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. What a terrible thing. But in prison, the Lord, it says the Lord was with him and the warden showed him kindness and granted him favor and put, put him in charge once again of many things in the prison. Oh, what a wonderful thing. But the Pharaoh's cupbearer and the Pharaoh's baker were thrown into prison with Joseph. Oh, what a terrible thing. But Joseph interpreted both their dreams by God's power, and the two were restored to their position. Well, actually, one of them was the the uh, the baker was actually killed, but uh, we'll go with the restored position of the one. What a wonderful thing, right? And the cupbearer, however, who promised Joseph that he would tell Pharaoh and help him get out of this place, forgot about Joseph in prison. What a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. Then the Pharaoh had a dream, and finally the cupbearer remembered Joseph. Oh, hey, there's this guy in prison. I bet he could interpret your dream. And he gets Pharaoh gets Joseph out of prison. Oh, what a wonderful thing. And Pharaoh interprets the dream for the Pharaoh that there's going to be seven years of plenty. Oh, what a wonderful thing. And seven years of famine. Oh, what a terrible thing. But because Joseph interpreted the dream for Pharaoh, he puts him in charge of the entire operation. What a wonderful thing. So the seven years of plenty come, and Joseph stores up all this extra food. The seven years of famine come, and during this famine, there was famine in all the land. Even Joseph's family was in famine. What a terrible thing. But the brothers came to Joseph, and they received food from Joseph. What a wonderful thing. But the brothers finally recognized that this was Joseph, their brother, who they sold into slavery and they were frightened for their very lives from what Joseph might do to them. Oh, what a potentially terrible thing. But here's the point of the story. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph tells his brother, As for you, you meant this evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present results to preserve many people. God used all those events, the good and the bad, for his purposes. Well done, Jeff Redorn. I love that story. And nice application to the story of Joseph, because there are, are so many occasions in that story where you go, oh, this is great news. Oh, wait a minute. This is not good. And yet you just hang in there with it, and you realize exactly the conclusion that God uses every circumstance for his glory. Mm. Amen. And can we say to him, Lord, let every circumstance in my life be for your good and your glory. That's a hard thing to do. That's a hard prayer to admit. It is. I think that's why Paul says he learned the secret of being content in all circumstances, because we're not naturally content when things aren't going well. But Paul says whether good or bad, he learned the secret of being content. Uh, That's, again, a great... Great point. All right, Jeff, we're going to go right into First Thessalonians chapter well, 3. Yeah, not quite yet. No, we're going to go to break first. Okay, let's go to break. Yeah. A couple more things, then into the last couple verses of chapter 3. All right. Jeff Redorn is my guest, and we're going to be right back as we continue our study in First Thessalonians. Don't go anywhere. 
If you just tuned in, we're talking to Jeff Ferdorn in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, but we've taken a couple side journeys, and they've been great. And Jeff, I think we have one more errand to take before we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We do. Well, let's just wrap up this kind of idea that good and bad happen to both the righteous and the unrighteous. In fact, Jesus himself promises this in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the sun rises on the evil and the good, and the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Ecclesiastes 9.2 is an interesting passage. It says this, it says, all share, so both the righteous and the unrighteous, share a common destiny. And that destiny in context is death. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who don't. So this is everybody. As it is with the good, so it will be with the sinful or the bad. The ultimate bad, if you will, how do you know it's good? How do you know it's bad? The ultimate bad in our eyes is always death, right? That's the worst thing. Oh, what a terrible thing. But Psalm 155 has this other interesting verse. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Oh, even that bad, that terrible thing, God turns into a good thing. What a wonderful thing. In fact, he calls it precious. Precious death? Yes. While death has no power, I'm sorry, no one has any power over the timing of their death, Ecclesiastes 8 says, But death itself no longer has any power over the believer. That's what the resurrection of Christ was all about. He broke the power of death over himself and everyone who would believe, Romans 6, 9 says, so that in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. There, there is no more fear in death for the believer. You say, oh, death, what a terrible thing. And God is going to turn that around for every believer and say, oh, death, what a wonderful mm-hmm. thing. And we've been broken. The power of sin has been broken in our life too. Thanks Absolutely. to the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the power that we have. So yeah. God can say greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, it's a really wonderful verse that summarizes this promise that God has for those who believe in him. And he says, no eye has seen, nor the ear has heard, nor has any human mind conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. I mean, our future destiny as believers in Christ Jesus is more, is greater, is better than what we can even imagine or conceive. Oh, what a wonderful thing. That is biblical hope. That's the hope that we have, that one day we will be resurrected, we will be glorified, and we will be with him forever and ever. You know, I love this word in the Greek for hope. It's elpisis, and it's not like the world's hope. The world's hope is that you hope something will happen. You hope something good will happen, but you're unsure whether it will or not. Like, I hope the Vikings will win or something like that. Yeah, you can't have that hope. No. (laughs) But the the biblical hope, this word, the definition is expectation with full confidence. Full confidence. And we can have that full confidence because God has promised these things, and therefore we can have true 
biblical hope, not worldly hope, but biblical hope, full expectation with confidence that these things are going to happen because God has promised it. So our salvation, our future, our glorification, our eternal life is based on God's promise. So I know these things are going to happen. This is not an arrogant statement, by the way, in any way, shape, or form, because it's not based on what we do, but what God has done and what he has promised. So in Philippians 1, 6, Paul writes this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. His promises are assured. And then we see this until when? Until the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, what day is that? Well, do you remember back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, it says that we will glory with crowns in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. And we talked about that verse in relationship to this day that we will be glorified with Christ. And I believe that's the rapture of the church. That's what it's called. And now we turn to the end of chapter 3 in 1 Thessalonians, and we read what? If you would, for me, Bill, read verses 12 and 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Oh, when the Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. So once again, at the end of this chapter, we have another reference. We've been talking about this every every session another reference to this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This time, it specifically says with his holy ones. So we're going to look at whether or not this is the second coming or once again, like all the rest of the chapters of Thessalonians, if this is the uh, a reference to the rapture. So some will argue that this, this is the second coming. And I, and I understand why, because if you know this, the description of Jesus' second coming with Re- in Revelation 19. It says that Jesus is coming on a white horse. There's a sword coming out of his mouth. His eyes are ablaze. Written on his thigh is this King of kings and Lord of lords. And it says that all the armies of heaven were following him. And so at his second coming, I think this is the resurrected church, the glorified church who is following him, that he is definitely coming with all of his holy ones. However... At the rapture, Jesus will also come with his holy ones. Will you turn to chapter 4 really quick? Now, we're not to chapter 4 yet, but I, we need to jump ahead just for a second and read 1 Thessalonians four fifteen through 17. This is one of the core rapture passages, and it's about time we read this and kind of get a feel for this event, how Scripture describes it. So go ahead, 1 Thessalonians four fifteen to 17. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
Wow, if that's not an encouraging word, I don't know what is. There is a day coming where there's actually two groups of people described in this passage, if you were listening carefully. It's those who have fallen asleep. They're called the dead in Christ. So every single believer who believed and has died is now in heaven with Christ. And so they, it says this passage, they, the dead in Christ, will rise first. They will receive their glorified bodies first. And then the second group of people are those who are alive and remain. Now, it doesn't say it in this passage, but they, those who are alive and remain, will be glorified as well. And cross-reference 1 Corinthians 15, 52, we will get to that when we get to this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, but we just got to do a little bit of an overview at this point. And so they will be changed, they will be glorified, and then it says they are caught up together with them in the clouds. So the holy ones... In 1 Thessalonians 3.13 that we just read, when Jesus comes with his holy ones, are the dead in Christ, those who are raised first, whom we will meet in the air. That is who the holy ones are. So once again, chapter 3 of Thessalonians, like every other chapter, ends with uh, what I see is a reference to the rapture of the church. So when Paul writes, may he strengthen you in your heart, so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all of his holy ones. He's referring to, Paul's referring to, the rapture of the church. That's the, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Uh, By the way, uh, the, the rapture, if you're not familiar with the rapture, this is the verse, by the way, where we get the term rapture. The word for caught up in the Greek is the Greek word harpazo, and it means to be snatched up, carried away, or claimed to oneself. And that's exactly what happens at the rapture. In the Latin, that caught up is the Latin word rapturo, and that is where we get the word rapture. So the rapture is, is doesn't the word does not appear in scripture, but the word harpazo does. That means snatched up. The Latin is rapturo. We translate it in English as caught up or snatched away in mm-hmm. some version. Mm-hmm. All right, Jeff, we're going to take our little break, but when we return, I do want to ask you about uh, when I read that verse in chapter 4, that when the uh, dead in Christ will rise first, mm-hmm. I'm getting a, a rise first. I have an image in my mind of how someone would rise. That's a question. We'll come back as we continue our series with Jeff Verdorn in first. Thessalonians. We're also going to cover 2 Thessalonians, so we've got several more to go. We'll be right back. So glad to be studying First Thessalonians with Jeff Verdorn. We're in a series. I think this is about episode seven, but it's been uh, really good. And if you have missed any of them, we will have them uh, 
assembled at some point in a lovely order so you can binge listen. That's the goal anyway. All right, uh, Jeff, I want to go back to chapter 4 of First Thessalonians in verse 16. It talks about, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So give give me the understanding of what that is. Where are these people? Shouldn't they be in heaven with God? They are. We know that the dead in Christ, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So we know the dead in Christ are in heaven. And so the common picture is that the dead in Christ, when they're at the resurrection, because really the rapture is resurrection day. This is the resurrection that Scripture promises over and over and over again. But we get this picture of somehow the bodies coming up out of the grave, out of the casket, out of the dirt. That's not where the dead are. We think of the word rise in terms of uh, coming up out of the ground. The dead in Christ are in heaven. Rising means to receive one's glorified body, your new glorified body, just like Christ. So the deads don't, their bodies don't come out of the grave. I mean, there's been people that have been dead for 2,000 years. They are, there's nothing left of their body. And so this rising is really truly the resurrection or glorification. The dead in Christ in heaven receive their glorified bodies first. That's what that means. All right. And then those who are alive and remain are caught up with them. By the way, really quick, we know that this event is going to happen. First Thessalonians 4 describes this event that we call the rapture, this catching up. It's resurrection day. So whatever your view is of eschatology, eschatology is the study of last things or the end things, you have to do something with this passage. What does this passage mean? And the the common kind of uh, view, traditional view, is this is the rapture of the church. When the dead in Christ and those who are still alive receive their glorified bodies and are caught up to heaven. Um, so, yeah, if whatever your view, you need to do something with that passage. And we're going to cover this again when we talk about First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to expand on this a little bit, so I appreciate will. touching on it today, and then we'll cover it in greater detail when we're in chapter 4. Yeah, so we're, we're going to turn to chapter 4 right now, the first few ver- verses, but we won't get to that verse until next time. But yeah, we will look at all the biblical reasons for the rapture, a lot of the rapture passages. We'll look at the timing issues of the rapture and some of the prophecies for that, and we'll put the pieces together, and we'll use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Yeah, and Jeff, why why are end times so controversial? Why are there there's so many uh, different interpretations of end times. We don't seem to have a lot of unity on this topic. It is. I I note this because I teach on the end times. I have a whole semester class called the study of the end times. And it is true that I think there's a, a couple reasons. One, I think first and foremost, it's complicated. God's plan for the end of the age is, is not in one place in the Bible. You really have to study the entirety of the Bible and take pieces from Daniel chapter nine and Matthew 24 and second Thessalonians two and the book of revelation and, and second Peter three and so on. You need to put all these pieces together. Uh, first Thessalonians four, first Corinthians 15, on and on and on. God has given us the pieces of the puzzle and those who want to understand eschatology, God's plan for the end of the age can start putting those pieces together, but because it's hard, because it's complicated and there are such a wide variety of views on it, 
a lot of churches, a lot of pastors just don't touch the subject. Yeah, that's problematic for sure. But we are also want to just be honoring to people who have a different view um, because that's there's a lot of different people that have different uh, thoughts and different understandings, and we just want to be honoring to everybody. We're not we're not planting our our, our flag in the ground. We're, we're just trying to understand what Scripture teaches. Yeah, we will talk a lot about the details, and the details are debated. Now, here's one thing that we should all agree on, and that is there is a future day when we will be glorified and with the Lord for all of eternity, and that is the hope that we are talking about in the last segment. And we all agree on that. We do. Yeah, which is fantastic. All right, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, and would you read verse 1 and 2? Yes. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember in the last chapter we talked about Timothy returning to see how the Thessalonians were doing and he brought back this really good report. The Thessalonians were standing firm in faith. And Paul was saying, basically, good job, keep it up, fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith. And, uh, and he's praising them for how they're standing up for truth and living by faith. And he's saying, basically, do that more and more. Will you re- read verse 3? I will indeed. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Okay, pause there for a second. Of course. So there's a long list of kind of things that he wants them to avoid. But this word, really quick, sanctified, this in the Greek means to be set apart, to be holy. The Greek is hagiosmos. And it basically says, God has made you holy. You are sanctified. You are set apart. You are consecrated now for God's purposes. For his use. God has made you holy through salvation. And what Paul is now exhorting the Thessalonians to do is to live holy. God has made you holy. Now he wants to he wants you to live holy. And so he's listing off some of the things that as someone who has been made holy, you should avoid. So sexual immorality, would you read four through six, and we'll read some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. This is basically the same as Paul said to the Romans in chapter um, 12, where he says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. Don't live like the world lives. You used to be lost. You used to live like that, but now you are saved. Uh, Ephesians 2 has a great line. He says, all of us used to live among the pagans, the, the, the ones who do these bad things at one time, fulfilling the cravings of our flesh and indulging its desires. Like the rest, we were by nature children of God's wrath. But we are not to live like that anymore. We are not to live like our old nature, like the worldly nature, like the world does, but we are to live by the Spirit. So Paul says, For flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, but the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. 
We are supposed to, as he says earlier in Galatians, walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And when we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So God's made you holy. Now live holy. That's Paul's exhortation here. As far as the last part of verse 6 where it says the Lord will punish those who commit such sins, remember, remember, remember that this punishment is for unbelievers. Believers are not under God's punishment. Remember Romans 8.1 where it says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who, have been, who are in Christ Jesus. Your, your punishment for your sins was taken upon Christ on the cross. You've been forgiven. You've been washed. You are clean. God no longer counts your sins against you. He separated your sins as far as the east is from the west. Hebrews 8 says he remembers them no more. You are a saint in God's eyes. You are no longer a sinner, quote-unquote sinner. You're no longer positionally a sinner. You are positionally a saint. Do you know that phrase, Bill, where it says, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace? Mm-hmm. And we hear this often. It's, it's, it's kind of a pithy line, but it's theologically, I would like to amend it. I would like it to say, I was a sinner saved by grace, or maybe amend it to, I'm now a saint saved by grace. I like that even, I like that even better. Do you, you like that? Because it's, it's, when you say, I'm a sinner saved by grace, you're actually saying, I, was lo- I am lost saved by grace. Now, even though God no longer sees us as sinners, but saints, we saints still miss the mark, mm-hmm. right? We yep. still sin, but we're not seen by God as sinners. We're seen as saints. That's our position mm. before God. So I'm a saint saved by Let's grace. Let's live in our proper identity. Exactly. That's that's exactly where this goes to. Now, you know, many teach that we are still a sinner and a saint. In fact, Luther, Martin Luther, famously said, now I don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to botch this pronunciation, but he used to teach simul justice et pecorta, and it means simultaneously just and sinner, simultaneously saint and sinner. And I just think that's just a wrong view. I, I hate to disagree with Martin Luther, but you cannot be both a sinner to God and a saint to God. You are one or the other. In fact, our old self, the old sinner self, has been crucified with Christ. That's what Galatians 2.20 is all about. Our old nature was crucified with Christ. Colossians 3 says, since you have taken off your old self, put on then your new self, being renewed in the knowledge of the image of the creator. Your old self has been taken off. You've been made new. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And therefore, now that God has clothed us, made us new, we're a new creation. Ephesians 4.24 says, therefore, put on your new self. Because you've been made holy, now live holy. Put on your new self. Jeff, it's almost as if I were trying to say, I am born again, but yet I'm not entirely born again. Uh, It's kind of like that. It's like, well, no, 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 no. you got to be one or the other. You are. Yeah. And there's only, he who has the son has life. Yes. He who doesn't have the son does not have life. 
You're either born again or not born again. You're either righteous or unrighteous. You're either saved or lost. You can see or you're blind. You're either clothed in the righteousness of Christ or you're shamefully naked. I mean, there, there's hundreds of descriptions yeah. condemned, in Scripture. Condemned, not condemned. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could keep going all afternoon with different descriptions. So We've one of those... We've got a time limit, though. I, we do. I know. One of those is saints and sinners. Mm-hmm. Believers are saints. The lost world are sinners. It doesn't mean that saints don't sin. That's not what that means. All right. Verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So here's our calling. Crystal clear. Live holy. Mm-hmm. Paul says to the Ephesians chapter 4, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manny, manner worthy of the calling you have received. We've received our calling. Christians, we've received our marching orders from Scripture, from God. He's made you holy, now live holy. He's declared you a saint, now live as a saint. He's given you a new heart, now live out that new heart. He's made you a new creation, now live in it. He's given you the Spirit of God, now walk by the Spirit. There are verse after verse after verse throughout the New Testament where God says, I've called you to be holy. I've called you to, be, to live out your saints. I've called you to live blameless in his sight. We instructed you how to live in order to please God. Have control over your own body. Live a holy life. I mean, over and over and over again, God is telling us, I've made you holy, so this is how I want you to live. Mm, well done, Jeff Dorn. All right, we're going to take a short break, but we want you to be engaged in Scripture. We want you, when you come to Faith Radio, and especially to my show, I want you to hear God's Word, and I want you to... Uh, let it sink in, and I want it to apply in your life. So you can practice spending time in God's presence, uh, and we're going to help you do that. If you want to sign up for our verse of the day email, I think you'll love it because it's a beautiful scripture graphic that we're going to send right to your inbox. So go sign up for that right now at myfaithradio.com. We'll be right back. We are studying 1 Thessalonians today with Jeff Verdorn. Jeff Verdorn. <laughs> Even though I occasionally want to say Jeffrey Dorn. Because that's a, that's a good name. You get I, That's a good name. It is kind of a cool yeah. name. I, I get that a lot. All right, Jeffrey. I'll, I'll introduce myself and they'll start calling me Jeffrey. And it's like, no, it's Jeff Verdorn. But Jeff Verdorn <laughs> sounds an awful lot like Jeffrey Dorn. It does. But I never say Jeffrey. You don't. You know my name. I never do, because I know your name. Thank you. All right. Let's go to chapter 4, verse 8. I will read it. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you the Holy Spirit. So two things here. When you preach the gospel and you are rejected and you walk away dejected, remember, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. So you're just the messenger. So remember that. And also remember that he has given us his Holy Spirit. You've received his Holy Spirit. By the way, the moment you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you received the Holy Spirit. All of the Spirit, by the way, not just part of it. There is no 
second event in your uh, Christian walk where you receive more spirit. You receive the spirit, the whole spirit, nothing but the spirit. You get it all the moment you believed and are saved. I know there is some in, in the church that teach there's a second filling or there's this baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is very clear, and we won't go into detail into this teaching today, but in Acts chapter 10 and 11, when Peter is preaching the gospel to one of the first Gentiles, Cornelius and his household, it says the Holy Spirit comes upon all of those who believe. Peter then is recounting what just happened back to the other disciples, and he goes, you're not going to believe this. The Holy Spirit came on these Gentiles the same way it came upon us at the beginning. And then he says, then I remembered what the Lord said, that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So we know biblically, scripturally, hermeneutically, if you will, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is receiving the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. He also says, or scripture says, God says, that when you receive the Holy Spirit, he will be with you forever. There's no losing the Holy Spirit. And one of the most powerful passages on this idea that God has given us the Holy Spirit, Jesus says he will be with you forever. But Paul says, this is in Ephesians 1, that you were included in Christ when you heard the message, the gospel of your salvation, you believe it and are saved. And when you're saved, it says that you are marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the day, until the redemption of those who are God's possessions. So the, so here's the picture. God has promised us a future inheritance in Christ. We don't have that inheritance yet. So God gives us this Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing that he will do what he's going to promise. And since God never goes back on his promise and because God can't lose his deposit, we know that we will receive this inheritance because the Holy Spirit himself is the deposit of God, of God's guarantee. What a powerful verse on our assurance of salvation. Yeah, I agree, Jeff. So he says, walk by the Spirit. I mentioned this earlier. We, are, we have the Holy Spirit of God. We are to walk by the Spirit. And then Paul says to the Galatians, then you will not gratify the desires of your flesh, but you'll live a holy life. All right, verse 9 and 10. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Hmm. Loving others. Um, it's, it's a most Christian thing, isn't it? Oh, it's the most. Mm-hmm. It is. I mean, Jesus himself said, as a new command I give you to love one another, just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And Jeff, I think we've talked about this before. It's never a bad idea to bring it up again. When you talk about loving one another, is, is love an emotional feeling or is it an action and an attitude you have towards somebody? Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny because I, I actually looked up, we have talked about this before. I've never really looked up what Merriam-Webster dictionary says about love. So I did that for this talk and it says this, a feeling, a feeling, that was what you were just saying, right? <laughs> right. A feeling of strong or constant affection for a person. Or two, an attraction that includes a sexual desire. So here we're getting the sexual part of it. Mm -hmm. A strong affection felt by people 
who have a re- romantic relationship, or three, a person you love in a romantic way. Now, it's interesting because that's not biblical love. No. It's not the highest form, this agape love or agapeo love. Agapeo love or agape love, according to Nelson's Bible Dictionary, is this. The high esteem which God has for his human children and the high regard which they in turn should have for him and other people. If you scan what the Bible says about this highest agape love, it is clearly a self-sacrificial love that looks out for the welfare of another. So in 1 John 4.10, for example, it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has first loved us and gave his son or sent his son to be the propitiation of our sin or the atoning sacrifice for our sin. God's love for man was self-sacrificial. Romans 5.8, For God demonstrated his love for us in this that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see that love is not a feeling? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it is a giving up of oneself for another. The world's love says, oh, I love my new car. I, I love this new girl. I love pizza. I love whatever. But it tends to be a, an idea that those things that bring me satisfaction those things that bring me pleasure, those things that I like or want to have, those are the things that I love. Biblical love, as you pointed out, is not an emotional feeling at all, but it's more of a verb. It's more of an act. It says, I'm, I love you, therefore I'm going to give myself up for you and serve you, just as Christ came not to be served, but to serve. That is true biblical love. Mm-hmm. Quite a quite a difference, isn't it? It is, and it's it's worth talking about because let's be honest. Do you, do you have emotional love the way you love uh, your spouse or your or your siblings or your best friend from grade school? No, you don't. Yeah. You have a different kind of love for the neighbor three away from you that isn't that nice of a person. <laughs> in in Greek, which was a very expressive language. They have multiple words for love, and I think in English we need to come up with some new words because just the word love doesn't do it, right? Because there's in Greek there's an eros love. That's kind of the love that I think Merriam-Webster was getting at. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the too. love that you have for your wife and maybe in a, in a sexual relationship kind of way. There's a, a, a Philadelphia love, brotherly love. Uh, phileo love in the Greek. This is a brotherly love. I I love you like a brother, so that's a love. Um, and then in Greek, there's this agape love, this self-sacrificial love that looks out for the love of another. I don't know that we have a true English word for that. Yeah, I think of the Good Samaritan stopping to help the wounded person. That was love. That was love. Great illustration in my head of love. The, the, I've never connected the the Good Samaritan with that word. That is absolutely a great picture of a self-sacrificial, I'm going to give myself up for another because I love them yeah. and I gave myself, just as God gave up his own son for us because he loved the world, so too the Good Samaritan gave up for this man that was on the side of the road. Put himself at risk, uh, surrendered some financial financial resources and looked out after him and took care of him. To me, that's a great illustration of love. It is. And, uh, and you know, it's just one more way that the world's ways, just like the world's hope versus biblical hope, the world's love 
is not biblical love. Mm-hmm. All right, Jeff, we just two minutes left. So let's. Uh, what, what are we taking home in the brown oh, paper bag? Let's see. Can we get through eleven and twelve? Read eleven and twelve. All real right. Quick. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So God wants us all to be carpenters, right? No, that's no. not what that says. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same. I think he's saying the same thing as like Peter says. He says, "Live such good lives amongst the pagans that they, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits." We should be doing right in the eyes of the world, whether their eye is upon us or not upon us. We should be working all things as if working for the Lord, not for men. Colossians three twenty three. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as if working for the Lord, not for men. Um, so Paul is, again, just like some of these other verses, telling us, let's leave good life so they have no accusation to bring against us. Let's do what is right. We should be law-abiding good people uh, as we hold out the words of light and let our light shine before men that they may see God in us. Mm-hmm. Jeff, thank you for our ongoing series in First Thessalonians. I'm looking forward to continuing this through Second Thessalonians. Always a delight to have you here with me in studio. Wonderful time, Bill. Thank you so much. That's our show for the day. Thank you so much for listening, tuning into my show, and supporting Faith Radio. If you missed any of this, go to the podcast, myfaithradio.com. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.